0: Welcome back to our series through the Apostle Peter's first letter to the church. Over the last two weeks, we've been in the introduction of the letter, but now we get to the body, which is really a call to action. In other words, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. A few of you got that. From verse 13, Peter writes... who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, so here's how we're going to do this today. First, I'm going to walk straight through the text, verse by verse, and make some observations. But then I'm going to save time for application at the end. So, let's begin with simply the first word of verse 13, Therefore... The first 12 verses of 1 Peter is almost a theological treatise laid down as foundation for the rest of the book. But here in verse 13, Peter turns to action, saying, Therefore, because of these truths about God and what God has done, please get your heads on straight, fellow believers, and start living it. Remember the previous sermon title was Changed First, and today it's Holy Changes. So, the point is that to make holy changes, one must first be wholly changed by God. Or in the lingo of verse 3, to have been born again. God and only God does that, but He only will do it through your faith in Jesus Christ. So, very quickly, from the first 12 verses, we learn six actions that God takes in order to change us, or to save us, really. And this leads right into the therefore be holy of verses 13 and following. We learned these six truths. God chooses us. God sends messengers to us. God regenerates us. God keeps us. God proves us. And God rewards us. So again, the therefore of today's text points right back to these six actions that God has already taken on our behalf as believers. God makes the first move. We respond with faith. And then through that faith, He changes us on the inside. But as we will see in today's text, there's still more to the story. God calls us to act on the changes He has made. And specifically, He calls us to fully devote ourselves to holiness. And that completes our discussion of the first word of today's text. I promise not to spend a similar amount of time on each word going forward. So far, we've covered, therefore, what comes next? Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, Peter is telling us to live like we've been saved, even as those whose hope is set on the return of Christ. But how do we approach such a challenge? Well, it starts with our minds, doesn't it? We are to prepare our minds to act in step with what God has already done inside us, being quite serious about it, sober-minded, as he says, which means this is not at all passive. This is not passive or automatic, but it requires a concentration of the will, something I'm afraid few modern Christians understand going on. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This word passions is all about your desires, your passionate desires to be specific. And we're not to conform to those desires as we would if we did not know Christ. Now, we must behave differently now, having been radically changed from the inside out by God. Let me paraphrase. As born-again, blood-bought believers, we are no longer to do whatever feels good in the moment. Get it? (laughs) In fact, we shouldn't even let those desires rage within our minds. We should set our minds toward bringing those desires out of conformity to the world and into conformity with the holiness of God. Sometimes I wonder... How many believers today even realize that most of our human passions and desires are evil? It's almost as if we think, since we have a desire, it must not be all bad. I think this really goes back to kind of an animalistic way of viewing our bodies. The modern idea that human desires are basically good mostly stems from the belief that we are simply more highly evolved animals. And so, our desires are actually there to make us better within the mechanism of survival of the fittest. As this logic goes, our desires are certainly not to be squelched. One wouldn't want to mess with Mother Nature. What is natural must also be good, you see. Under this kind of worldview, our passions or desires are supposedly helpful to us and to the human race, except for our desire for gluten or meat or world domination. Of course, those are obviously evil and must be driven from us for the greater good. Yeah, not consistent. Have you been aware of this worldly philosophy, wherever it comes from, whether from biology or often from modern psychology as well, that we should never squelch our personal desires? that We should always follow our passions. That's sort of the message, isn't it? Never suppress, never squelch. And especially in your children, never guide them against their natural desires, right? Always let them go wherever their heart takes them. Essentially, never parent. That's what they're saying. Always find a way to do what feels right and let your children do what feels right to them as long as you or they don't hurt anyone. In fact, if you suppress or deny your desires or theirs, we'll all wind up with physiological and psychological problems. That's the world's message of late. By the way, how's this all working out? (laughs) We are looking at the implosion of a generation or two so far leading toward the meltdown of society. That's how it's working out. Probably the number one way this philosophy gets applied is in the reasoning behind a general encouragement to commit whatever sexual act feels good to you. Including those acts which God has said are harmful, sinful, and immoral. But the world is saying that if you have a passionate desire, it must be right for you or else you would not have the desire. That's basically what they're saying. But is, is it true that most of our desires are good? No, it is not true in the slightest. Let me ask a question. Before this idea was the message preached in the public square, you know, back when the general message was not anything goes or do what feels good, Was there more depression or less depression? Were there more suicides or less suicides? When my parents were in high school and nobody thought anybody should sleep around. And back when nobody thought sexual immorality was something to celebrate. Were young people better off than they are now or worse off? There's no comparison, of course. Things were much better when everyone understood that many desires, in fact, needed to be squelched there were demonstrably less suicides. Depression was rare. There was less confusion among young people especially, and above all, there was less insanity. You think it's bad to suppress your desires? Try giving in to all of them, and you'll wind up dead. I'm not sure if you can kill yourself with vanilla shakes, but if I did not regularly squelch that desire in myself, I think I might find out. Of course, the Bible explains that we are born depraved, evil, sinful, and as soon as we are old enough to know what sin is, we choose sin because that is our nature. Because of our sinful nature, many of our desires are evil, and that's the clear truth from Scripture. If you're a follower of Jesus and you don't understand that many of your own desires are sinful and therefore ought to be denied. Or if you think that just because you have a desire, it might be harmful to deny it, you may have listened to the lies of the world rather than being sanctified in your mind by God's truth. To sum up, you and I both have evil desires, and those evil desires will need to be crucified daily if we're really going to follow Jesus in these bodies of sin and death. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's what our text today says, or as Paul put it in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Going on, verses 15 and 16. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And here it is. I mean, this is the big point two words, be holy. This is not only the core statement from our text today, but really this is the core statement of the entire book of First Peter. You can see pretty clearly here, easily, I think, that number one, God is holy, and two, He has called you and me to be holy in the same way that He is holy. Those two truths are, are, are just right there, most obvious. But whatever you do, don't miss the phrase, in all your Conduct. At this point in the letter, Peter's sort of like, enough about the inside. What about the outside? Enough about what God has done for you. Now, what are you going to do for Him? What are you going to do to thank God for what He's done for you? Is that too much for me to say or a bad motivation? You know, I don't think so. Love and appreciation are good motivations. He deserves my love. He deserves my life because He paid the highest price, as we sing. I'd put it this way. If you won't do it for yourself, do it for God. In the Greek, Peter uses an idiom, and he literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's basically saying, Get a grip and straighten up. Peter says, Get a hold of yourselves, put your mind in gear, and in light of what God has already done for you in verses 1 through 12, start conducting yourselves with holiness. That's what he's saying. I like the way Stephen Curtis Chapman put it in one of his older songs called The Change. It goes like this, and why not? Might as well sing it. Yeah? (laughs) Well, I got myself a t shirt that says what I believe. I got letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID. I got the necklace and the keychain, and almost everything a good Christian needs. Yeah. I got the little Bible magnets and my refrigerator door and a welcome mat to bless you before you walk across my floor. I got a Jesus bumper sticker and the outline of a fish stuck on my car. And even though this stuff's all well and good, I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? What about it? It's always tough when you start in the wrong key. (laughs) Holiness for a human means change. A lot of change. Can we really be changed that much? Can we live holy as God is holy? God says we can. If you don't believe it, you've not comprehended the power of the cross nor the hope of the resurrection. If you and I do not set our minds to action in order to be holy, we remain in unnecessary bondage. It's as if Christ opened our cage, but we decided to stay inside. Where does this quote, be holy as I am holy, come from? Did you notice Peter said it? is written. Well, where is it written? It is written in Leviticus chapter 11, and the context there is that since God saved them from the bondage of slavery to Egypt, they should be holy as He is holy. The idea as it applies to us is this, since God has set you free from the bondage to sin, stop sinning. Remember, you are chosen, you are regenerated, and you are kept by God. This is why you can now conduct yourself in holiness, but that doesn't mean it'll be easy. Does it sound like Peter thinks this will be easy? No, his language calls for discipline. Some of the imagery he uses points to those preparing for wrong, uh, to run long-distance races. As someone who's done that, I know the kind of preparation it takes. Only Peter applies, though, instead of the imagery to the physical body, he applies it to the mind. It's all about pulling yourself together and getting a grip, basically. He's saying, get yourself strapped in, focused, and determined. Leave passivity behind and stop living like your average Joe who doesn't know God. And no, that was not a political reference. (laughs) Unless you want it to be. As we all know, (sighs) you gotta have a little comic relief every now and then, right? Even though believers are made holy on the inside by grace through faith in Christ, sadly, we do not always live out that holiness. We have been changed if we are saved. But somehow, some way, we do not always live like we've been changed. This is horribly inconsistent, and the results are apocalyptic. Yes, apocalyptic. We can sometimes see at least some of the earthly consequences of our lack of holiness. But Peter also mentions heavenly consequences, We can see a reference actually to eternal consequences, both a few verses back in our text and also in the very next verse right after this one. The point being that when we do not live out God's holiness on this earth, it matters and it is going to matter a lot for eternity. Perhaps worst of all, when the people of God do not live out His holiness, we tarnish His name to a lost world. Or do you not remember that we are His ambassadors? When we fail to represent God through less than holy conduct, the world takes notice. And they have not been silent on this, have they? No, they see our hypocrisy. And make no mistake, our lack of holiness is a real and consequential stumbling block to them. So yes, I would go so far as to say our lack of holiness and conduct as children of God carries with it apocalyptic consequences. Do we even know? How much of this world's problem is a lack of holiness From believers? When we don't live out the change, the world is not changed through us. And make no mistake, we are called to change the world, to advance and expand the kingdom of God here. But I fear that too often we are more changed by them than they are by us. So remember these apocalyptic consequences when I get to the application of how we can actually start Being holy in all of our conduct. Let me pause here and say something to some of you. What I would say is this stop giving up. Stop giving up on holiness. Gird up the loins of your mind, Peter says. Get a grip and be holy. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is an amazing verse of scripture. More than likely, Peter has in mind a certain prayer. When we prayed earlier, the model prayer, wherein Jesus told us to pray to our father who is in heaven. Peter says, if you're going to call God father, You better learn to live like his child. But then notice he also refers to God as judge in the same sentence. He's our father, but he's also our judge, even still. Now, I want to be careful here because God does not judge believers in the same way that he will judge the world. Why? Because Jesus already paid the penalty for our sin, and there is no double jeopardy with God. Our sins are already covered and forgiven and even removed as far as the east is from the west. Washed away, as our text indicates a little further along, by the blood of Christ. So then, what of this idea in verse 17 that God still judges us impartially and according to our deeds? This is very important. I believe verse 17 points back to verse 4, where we are told about our heavenly inheritance. And also verse 7 where we're told that we will be rewarded with praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Or as I quoted last week, the verse from Revelation where Jesus says that He will bring His reward with Him when He comes, and that He will reward us according to our deeds, which is parallel language to our text today, according to each one's deeds. So, please understand that this idea that God is a Father who judges impartially according to our deeds, goes together with a concept of eternal rewards. So that the fear reference here is more like a fear of missing something, not the fear of being judged for bad behavior. Any judgment of God upon sin would not contain a reference to Him as Father, because for those to whom He is Father, our sin is already judged. To go a little bit deeper, I think verse 17 must be a reference to the Bema Seat, also known as the mercy seat, like a throne from which believers will be judged by God as Father. Again, not for sin, but for how well we have followed Christ. And will be held accountable in some undisclosed way. But we will also be rewarded for what we have done during our time on earth. You can read more about this in places like like 1 Corinthians 5.10. Romans 14.10, but right now the point is that this verse in our text should not make us return to a works-based mentality in terms of trying to earn or keep our salvation. No, what the text is pointing to here is that how we live on earth is going to matter in eternity, and that is something we do need to remember. The idea is that knowing God will judge our deeds in this way can help motivate us toward holiness, even as we sojourn in this unholy world. And that's the point of the final phrase here in this verse, during the time of your exile. Remember from the first verse of this book, we are elect exiles. And if more believers would embrace that reality, I think it would help us to be holy in our conduct. We are citizens of heaven on mission from God. And so someday we get to go back home to be with Him. We are exiled here. And that means maybe we're not even supposed to be perfectly happy all the time or to have every desire met, because this is far from our paradise, that which comes later and forever. The idea that we live in exile on earth can help us be separate, set apart, different, changed, holy in all our conduct. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. At this point, I want to remind you of what I said in week one, that the original audience here consisted of newly converted Greeks or Gentiles, not Jews, which is to say their ancestry was Pagan. Their forefathers did not worship or serve Yahweh, the one true God. And while I might tend to think their ancestry or ours doesn't matter, Peter points this out for a reason. I think he's still trying to be motivational. He's pointing to the contrast of their old lives and even the lives of their forefathers, the, the, the futility, the lostness, the, the idolatry. And he's saying, look at what Christ has saved you from. And let that spur you on toward living in a way that matches the perfection of His sacrifice. In truth, every single one of us was ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers. Maybe your parents were Christian, but all of us have unbelievers in our gene- genealogy. All of us here today have forefathers and foremothers who did not know God, assuming we're all Gentiles. If you go back far enough your ancestors were pagan. Now, I suppose if you are a Jewish Christian, maybe you could trace your line all the way back and say that's not the case in a certain kind of way. But as Gentiles, our ancestors were pagan, folks. Why does it matter? Well, it's just another way to say, look what God has done. Look how He has come after us and chosen us in spite of ourselves and look what he paid for our ransom also that we could be holy what a shame if such a priceless and undeserved ransom does not change our conduct verse 20 he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you the coming of christ was foreknown. And from verse 2, remember, we are also foreknown by God in the same way. In some sense, we might even say that God's foreknowledge of our salvation is wrapped up in His foreknowledge of Christ. If there had been no need for us to be saved, there would have been no need for the sacrifice of Christ. It would seem that everything God does is based on His foreknowledge, both in terms of what we need and in terms of what He's going to provide. This ultimately means that in spite of what God knew it would cost, the blood of His Son, He nevertheless planned to pay the cost. What He knew about us was worth what He knew about the price. And this can be seen in the last phrase, for the sake of you. Can you even stand it? Before the foundation of the world, you were worth it to God to come and die. Again, this should motivate us toward holy conduct. And then verse 21, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This verse brings it all back around to what God has done through Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, God chose us because He foreknew us. He sent messengers to us. He regenerated us. He's keeping us. He's proving us. He will reward us. All of this is possible because of the work of Christ on the cross through whom we have become believers with our hope of eternal life fixed upon Him, the one who rose from the dead. Notice also that verses 20 and 21 demonstrate clearly that faith in Christ doubles as faith in God. Our God is three in one. Now, let's get into the application that I promised, and this will be sort of like another whole sermon on the same text here at the end, but it's a shorter sermon. And in this one, I'm going to major on the how-to. How do we really live out this holiness that Christ has earned for us? How can we actually be holy in all our conduct, even as God is holy? Four steps to remember, and we will see these coming out of the text we just unpacked. First of all, To be holy, look away. From verses 13 through 14, where Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. All right, so the idea here in looking away, is that in order to prepare our minds for action or to be sober-minded and in order to set our hope fully on the grace that is coming to us when Christ returns, we will need to look in a different direction. Hear this, your eyes are the windows of your mind. For the most part, you will think about what you are looking at. How can we turn our passions away from conformity to our former ignorance? We do it by looking away, by looking at something different. If you want to be holy, look away. Look away from what? From the world. Peter is clear that although we are already holy in terms of our forgiven position before God because of Jesus, being holy in our conduct is going to require an engagement of the mind, which in turn is actually an exercise of the will and I do believe that. Without bypassing all that I've said for the last two weeks about our internal nature being changed by God and not ourselves, please understand that to be holy in conduct, willpower is required, particularly in the area of mental discipline. While holy conduct cannot be achieved through willpower and mental discipline alone, it cannot be achieved without those things either. Why is this? Three reasons. First, because the Bible says that we are not yet glorified. We are being sanctified, as Peter says. And so, what does that very statement imply? It implies that we are not all the way there yet. This is a process. We have already been justified by faith at the moment of salvation, so much so that God has declared us to be flawless in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Our souls are saved. Still, there is an earthly part of us that has not yet been shed. Or is anyone here outside of their body? don't answer that and stop doing drugs. As the Apostle Paul put it, who will free me from this body of sin and death? He was talking about how in his flesh he still struggles with sin, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak even for Him. See, we all have something the Bible calls the old man still hanging around in there. And until we pass from these bodies that the Lord returns, we will drag around some shell of our unsaved personhood, a shadow of our old self that still requires a wrestling match in order to be brought into submission to the holiness we're now capable of in Christ. But I said there are three reasons we still struggle. The second reason is that we live in a fallen world. The world is cursed, by sin. At first, there was only one tree. You know, I mean, one forbidden fruit. And everything else was good. But after the fall, that forbidden fruit had babies. You know? What I mean is everywhere we look now, there are forbidden things. Why are they forbidden? Because they will ruin us They will taint us and delude us and lead us into sin and rob us of holiness. This sinful world is working against our holiness efforts, just in case you did not know that. The third reason we still struggle is that we have a real enemy. The Bible says Satan is looking around to see whom he can devour. This is voiced to believers, actually. But it's also followed up with the fact that he has no power over us except what we give him. Scripture says Satan is the prince of the power of the air, or as I like to say, the airwaves if you follow me. He has power to tempt us and discourage us and throw us off our holiness game any way He can. He wants to defeat us, and all we have to do for Him to win most of the time is look where He wants us to look. This brings me back to the point of how we do better look away. Maybe you don't see how looking away really helps, so let me first ask you, what are you looking at? What are you looking at online? What are you looking at in the mall? What are you looking at on your phone? What are you looking at driving in your car, at work, at the park, at the ball game, at the beach? And when you walk around your block, listen up and answer this question right this minute in your mind, please. What are you looking at? Not right now, of course. Right now you're looking at me, and you're welcome. But no. <laughs> I'm talking about like all the rest of the time for some of you. I mean like all the rest of the time when you aren't listening to the preacher. Or you aren't, you know, if you're really good uh, reading your Bible, what are you looking at? I could bring up so many things. But most of you could probably guess what I'm going to pick on this morning. Think of something that is new. That most everyone is constantly looking at now. What is everyone using one finger to look at more and more? Well, Facebook calls them reels. I think this mostly started with TikTok, but I'm talking about these short videos, and they're everywhere now, and they're totally addictive. YouTube calls them shorts. Instagram has them too, I hear. These tiny video clips which are chosen for you by algorithms that take into consideration exactly what you looked at yesterday or in the last five minutes and for exactly how long you looked. And then they just keep showing you more of whatever caught your eye the most. You've been wishing for a new Jeep Wrangler. Well, you start seeing all the short videos of cool Jeeps. You like cats, you get cats. You like half-naked women or men dancing around, you get that. Are we tracking? Too close to home? Look away. Just one example. Maybe you set up a church today, you want. not You'd have to honestly say you know, you're a believer. Let's assume you're a believer. Some people here may not be, but I'm talking to believers right now. So you'd have to admit, that even as a believer, your conduct of late has not been holy. All right, brother, sister. The first question I have for you is this: What are you looking at? Listen to this ancient wisdom from the psalmist: I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. These happen to be two of my memory verses because I have learned that when I'm drifting from holiness, the first thing I need to change is what I'm looking at. I need to look away from so many things. Maybe you're asking, why would I potentially need to look away from practically every man-made thing in this world? It just seems so unreasonable, doesn't it? How much stuff do I need to look away from? A lot of stuff. The reason is that our eyes are wired to look at the things we desire but don't have. Part of the human condition. Think about it. Lust, covetousness, greed. These are the sources of some of the worst sins you can imagine. Where do all these sins start? With your eyes. The windows of your mind look away. What happens when we don't look away? We fall into idolatry, sexual immorality, materialism, and selfishness. You wanted practical help and not just the theology lesson, right? I mean, this is the application part that everybody wants in sermons. Now, I don't blame you, but I can't give you anything better than this right here. How do I conduct myself myself in a holy way on this unholy planet? Step one, look away. You got to look away from a lot. Now, let me ask you, how well is this going to work if you don't do it? If you just keep looking at everything the same way, you don't look away. How much will you benefit from what I'm sharing? None. Alrighty then. Step two. On your way to actually being holy in all of your conduct, look ahead. Look ahead to what? The future. From verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. All right, now remember all that I explained to you when we covered this portion of our text about God being our father as believers, but that even in a fatherly way, he's still making judgments about how well we are doing during our temporary assignment on this earth. God is watching to see if we are going to live in a way that is worthy of the ransom he paid. And remember that how you live here is going to matter up there. Look ahead. We need to look ahead to see the consequences of our actions, and not just consequences on this earth, but for eternity. Remember, there are rewards for faithfulness. Remember also that we're only exiles on this earth. Look ahead. The Apostle John said, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. How is it that at the age of two or three, we did not learn that the thing we thought we wanted so badly would not make us happy even when we got it? How could we have not learned this by now? We're like mosquitoes flying into the bug zapper. Oh, the light. Think about the three things John mentioned. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful boastful pride of life. How much pain do these things bring into our lives, do you think? So much pain and so much unholiness. We need to look ahead To the consequences of giving in to such desires, both in this life and the next. We need to look ahead to what will live forever and what will pass away. But listen, again, you actually have to do this, right? You have to look ahead when it feels like the moment is what matters. For this to help, you have to look ahead to the consequences even when you don't want to do so, right? You know what I mean? You you start to think about it and you're like, I don't want to think about that. I like this. This is the light. You know, you have to stop, hit the pause button, and think ahead. So, let me tell you about Billy. Billy wants what he can't or shouldn't have, and he never looks ahead to what is going to happen if he gets what he wants. Billy wants what is on the other side of the fence. And one day, Billy gets what he wants right before being eaten by the wolves who were waiting there. See, if you haven't figured it out yet, Billy is a goat. And he should have trusted the farmer with the grass he had been given. I can't go much deeper on this today, but I do want to mention also that sometimes we have to think a little harder Gird up the loins of our minds, as Peter said, to really look ahead. you got to think a little harder, you know. Engage your minds. We can't be as stupid as a billy goat. For example, you might think, oh, I can look at this lusty picture on the Internet and it doesn't hurt anyone. But nothing can be further from the truth. The consequences are a list too long to share, both for you and for others, and both for this life and the next. Don't be as dumb as a billy goat. Look ahead. Step three, look up. Look up to what? The cross. Yes, look to the cross early and often in your day if you want to live with holiness. From Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We talked about Leviticus earlier where possibly the number one theme is that holiness can only be granted to human beings through the shedding of blood. They would sacrifice lambs to get some kind of temporary forgiveness, but more than they knew, it was mostly to point forward to Christ, who would be the ultimate sacrifice for all who believe. His blood paid our ransom. Our holiness comes through the precious blood of Christ. He makes us holy by grace through our faith in the sacrifice He has made for our sin. And so to stay holy in conduct, frequently look up to the cross. Look up into heaven also. Where Christ now reigns on the throne with the Father to stay holy, look up to Jesus. Beyond remembrance or awareness, though, I have something else in mind. Looking up reminds us of our desperation for help, for repentance and confession and renewal. I don't have time to share it, but for your homework, check out Isaiah chapter 6 and the first several verses where Isaiah is granted a vision into heaven. And there he sees God on his throne which isn't really supposed to happen, by the way, but that's what it says. Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. And then he describes the throne room. The angelic beings are shouting or singing, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What happens next? Isaiah falls on his knees in contrition and says, woe is me, I am unclean. See what I'm getting at? Isaiah did not recognize his own lack of holiness until he saw the holiness of God to be holy, look up. If you learn to keep a clear mental picture of God in front of your eyes each day, you'll find yourself wanting to be holy. What's our best image of God? Possibly Christ on the cross, wounded and bleeding for us. Nothing will turn your heart back toward holiness like Jesus Christ on the cross. Look up. Now, the fourth step that I can give you that I hope can help You conduct yourself in holiness, and this is the last one, is this, look within. Look within to see what? The Holy Spirit. From verses 20 and 21, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, what do these verses have to do with the Holy Spirit? I said we need to look within to see the Holy Spirit in order to pursue holy conduct. And that probably makes sense to most of you. But how does that idea flow from this text? Well, how exactly was Christ made manifest to us? I'm not asking how He was first manifested on earth originally. That would have been through the virgin birth. But Peter says in these last times, in these last times, which by the way started 2,000 years ago, but regardless, in these last times, how was Christ made manifest both to the original audience of this letter and to us? Had the original audience there in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey ever met Christ personally in bodily form? No. Have we? No. How was Christ made manifest to them and now to us? Short answer through the Holy Spirit. Remember, when Jesus went up, the Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, and now His Spirit lives within all who believe, Romans 8, 9. For the record, I have no problem talking to children about inviting Jesus into their hearts. It's one of those little drums people beat to try to make themselves look smarter or better, like they know more than like the whole last generation. I think it's fine to talk about inviting Jesus into your heart as long as we explain Listen, the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit, folks. And when we accept Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts, in our souls, in our, in our lives. So again, how was Christ made manifest in these last times for our sake? The one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that is Christ, has ultimately been manifested in us and for the sake of us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. God is three in one. He is not simply three. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, which is exactly how Paul could say, Christ in me is the hope of glory. Christ in me, what does he mean? He means that Christ is manifested within His body through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Back to the point, looking to the Spirit within us can help us conduct ourselves with holiness. And I'm not only referring to the power He provides, but something more. I can't tell you how many times I have turned away from some sinful act because I looked within, not for some self-centered motivation, but I have paused to remember that whatever I do, the Holy Spirit is right there with me. He's not simply watching uh, from nearby. No, He's inside me. What did Peter start with at the beginning of this passage? Our minds. Listen to what Paul says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Or how about this one? Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. What if part of setting our minds on the Spirit is remembering that the Spirit of God is within us? First Corinthians 6.10 and following There's a great passage for homework as well, where the Bible indicates that when we act immorally, when we do something immoral, sinful, in some way, we are bringing the Holy Spirit into that immorality. And so the warning against immorality is severe because He lives within us. Look it up. Be blown away. 1 Corinthians 6. When you look within to the Spirit of God, you will find an extra reason conduct yourself in holiness. Now, the last few words of our text today is this, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is important because it brings us back around to the point of the last two weeks that we can't do any of this in our own power. As I already mentioned, Christ in us is our hope for glory. Similarly, the Spirit of God in us is our hope for holiness. He grants the power. This puts a good book in on to our discussion today about how to engage our minds and our will by changing what we look at in order to live out the holiness which through faith and hope we are now capable of in Christ. So to be holy in your conduct, look away from the world, look ahead to earthly and heavenly consequences, look up to Christ on the cross, and look within to the Holy Spirit. All right? We packed in a lot today, so I need to call it. I hope you found something helpful in your quest toward holy conduct. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Change us and help us to make changes. That's my prayer. Change us and help us to make changes. Lord, for each person in this room right now, I hope there's something, some some area, something that you are chiseling away at for every believer here. But God, I also want to pray for those in the room that maybe have never really surrendered to you. Maybe they never understood that you've asked for that. Maybe they never understood that you gave your life on a cross for them, and maybe they never realized there's something that they're supposed to do in response. So, for anyone here, God, who hasn't understood that or hasn't been ready today, maybe, that person could just tell you right now in their heart and your spirit so you can hear. They could just tell you in their heart right now, I, 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 I need this. I need the blood of Jesus to pay for my sins. I need it to be applied to me. I um, I surrender. Maybe that's you today. You just, just in your heart, just say, I, I surrender to God's plan. Save me. The way you decided to do it. I may not understand it all, but just, I just surrender. I just lay it down. I need you to save me, God. I need my, my sin. The things that I've done that are not holy, I need it to be cleansed. I need you. I want to become holy. I want to live like you want me to live instead of like all the world is living. I want to be different. I want to be changed. Oh, if you could have that kind of a moment and you mean it in your heart today and you turn to Jesus, He will save you. The Bible's so clear on this. So many places He promises, He will do it. He will do it. He's just waiting for you to turn and say yes to His plan of salvation in Christ. Father, I look forward to this afternoon and the baptism where so many are going to stand and say, that's me. And we know in your word that people were baptized right after they made that decision, sometimes for logistical reasons or whatever. Uh, we wound up waiting a while these days. i not sure about that, but I'll just pray that if there's anybody in this room that is ready today, that's serious about turning their life over to you, Today, they've, they've surrendered and you've caused them to be born again. And they would uh, be willing to make a statement to that effect. And they want to be baptized tonight. I pray they'd have the courage to come talk to me. There's no reason to wait if there's a true decision, if there's true faith. No reason at all. Father, keep working in our church. Thank you so much for the salvations we've seen and people that have made a decision to surrender to you, to follow you. And uh, just keep working. Thank you for your word and your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.